0: All right. Welcome to Uncle Steve's Iron Main Zone, and you will be delighted because we are going somewhere back in time with my friend Andrew. So, uh let me welcome him here.
1: Yes, hello. Yes, I'm not The sure Weekend Warrior your- himself. I'm not sure if I'm going to be your friend after this one.
0: Okay, that's not the way to start <laughs> out, but uh <laughs> How are you, sir?
1: I'm all right. How are you?
0: Doing well. Doing well. Glad you're back. Glad to have you back. I know it's been a little while. I think we just figured it out. It's been almost three months. And yes,
1: I didn't realize it was three months, but there we go.
0: By the time this comes out, it's uh, Wow. So do you think you'll be the most hated man in podcast land?
1: Well, possibly. Ooh. Ooh.
0: <laughs> so, so it's been three months. Yes. So I think it's time for another episode of somewhere back in time what do you think why not why not <laughs>
2: don't be afraid you're say- George, and you're listening to Uncle Steve and the Maiden Zone. Yeah, woo! As we go somewhere back in time with my dad, Andrew. Come on, Uncle Steve. The show's about to start. <music>
0: Okay, so we like to play a little game called Stump the Dummy. (laughs) I'm the dummy. (laughs) You're the stumper. (laughs) Where I try to guess which song from a particular Iron Maiden that we are going to cover. Mm. And right now, if you will, Andrew, go ahead and give me an album. And I will see how long it takes me to figure it out.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, um, this is an album that you have dedicated at least two podcasts to in the past. Um, It's Fear of the Dark.
0: Fear of the Dark. That's an interesting one because, wow. Wow. Uh, let me look through these songs. Okay. It seems like, to looking at this, it seems like there's only one obvious song to choose. Yeah. And it, if it's not the obvious song, then wow, I'm going to be in trouble. Um. Okay. When you play cards, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes they say the Joker's wild. Mm-hmm. But, but this this time I think I've got the jack. I think I've got it. Who? I, th- I think it's going to be Afraid to Shoot Strangers.
3: Ooh.
1: Well. No.
0: <laughs> oh no. Oh
1: give, gosh. I'll, okay. okay. I'll give you a little clue.
0: Wait, 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 let me look. Let me look. Let me look. Let me look. I don't want I don't want a clue. Wanna... Okay, I'll 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 ask a question though. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just ask the song then. Is it the fugitive? No. Ooh. Oh no. <laughs> is it weekend warrior?
1: <laughs> I'm gonna do it. Yes. It's weekend warrior? <laughs> it is.
0: Ooh, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's all I told you.
0: Your theme song, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed. See when you introduced me as the weekend warrior I thought how appropriate
4: how appropriate <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now. Just look at you now.
0: This is not one that I ever would have expected. And 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 the conversation we've had uh back and forth over the over the last month or so of coordinating this, mm-hmm. and you told me how many pages of notes you had. Yes. <laughs> I never would have thought it was this.
1: No, but I did send you a little message this morning, which was that you needed a good night's sleep so you could get up and be on the ball. And that was a little clue.
0: Is that a lyric in the song?
1: No, it's just about being playing football.
0: Okay, okay, on the ball. You know, uh, I wanted to ask you this too. I know mm-hmm. we've chatted a little bit before, and and maybe this is bringing up something that you won't, maybe you'll hate me after I ask you this. Uh-oh. But I've had a couple of Queet quotes in the last couple of weeks from oh. the Honorable Counselor. Yes. And it was You'll Never Walk Alone, which is a song that apparently is sung at a football stadium for a certain team. I don't remember which
1: team it is. Uh, yes. And uh, don't worry, that is going to be covered in the uh, in what I'm going to be talking about. Ah, okay. Uh, Yes, I hadn't noticed that at all. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a coincidence because I've just, just been writing about that song.
0: <laughs> oh, very nice. I did watch the video. He sent a video. Yes. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. Like I said, I don't even remember which team it was, but I, the passion of the fans and everything that was going on. Very cool.
1: Very cool. Yes, uh, that video was filmed at the Melbourne Cricket Ground here in Australia.
0: Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Andrew, um, I don't know. You know, sometimes I ask Matt a question that that I'm going to regret, so I'm going to have to do the same thing here, I guess. Why don't you tell us, Andrew,
1: Mm -hmm. about Weekend Warrior? (laughs) Okay, well, it's Saturday lunchtime. We're stepping out the darkness of the tube station and into the bright north london sunshine the aroma of cigarette smoke fried onion and horse manure hits you (laughs) you breathe it in it's like coming home to familiar sights and smells you pass various merchandise sellers wear your colors you buy the match programme off your usual programme seller and perhaps get a fanzine or two from for some alternative reading. The Echo Echo, the Guna. One nil down, there's plenty to choose from. As you turn from Gillespie Road into Avonel Road, you grab a quick lunch from either the Golden Fish Bar or a van selling large Frankfurter hot dogs with plenty of fried onion, mustard and tomato sauce. If you're in the mood, perhaps you'll take a short walk to the Bank of Friendship in Blackstock Road for a pint. But usually, you just want to get in early, secure your favourite spot. So, after taking in the magnificent facade of the East Stand as it towers over the terrace houses opposite, you turn and head towards the turnstiles. Always the same one. You've got to keep the luck with you. Lucky scarf on, lucky program seller, lucky turnstile. (laughs) You pay a fiver and you're in. Climb up the steep steps and you've stepped into a different world, the stadium, quiet now, but later it will be a cauldron of noise, shouts of frustration, anger, abuse, celebration. You make your way along the sweep of the concrete terrace under the dark north bank roof and towards the front, just to the left of the goal. The television cameras are here. You're in the right spot to maybe catch a glimpse of yourself on Match of the Day tonight. You've settled in to your favourite spot. You're here. I'm taking you back to the 1980s to the Football League, and to the big match, but keep your wits about you. Things might get a bit tasty, especially when this lot pay us a visit. (laughs) So, um, before we get right into it, I'm going to just take a moment to pay tribute to the person without whom I may not have a love of football and Arsenal, in particular, which is my dad. He took me to Highbury, the home of Arsenal Football Club back in when I was a little boy, back in the mid-70s. And I've heard stories that when I was a little lad, I would come down the stairs late on a Saturday night and sit there watching through the door. Match of the day, the uh, highlights programme of football matches that was on uh, every Saturday evening. Very, very late, about 10 o'clock at night. And, uh, of course, then I'd be going on and sit watching it with my father. Um, And, of course, over the years, we've gone to many, many games together. And, um, of course, he passed away just before Christmas. So this is sort of a little tribute to him and his memory. Nice. I also have um, three people to thank for this because they're to blame for me doing this. Um, Back when, just before Senjutsu came out, I... Um, listened to every album each day, building up to St. coming out, and um, I tweeted each day, and the tweet for Fear of the Dark got the most responses. <laughs> Bizarrely. Yeah, and, and the likes of James Fraser and uh, uh, Fergal from the Fickin Mec- Metal uh, podcast, yeah. and Don, uh, the Liverpool Scouser, Don McIntyre, all yeah suggested or agreed that this would be a good subject for one of these episodes.
0: Are you serious? I am serious. So in other words, (laughs) the people that you have to thank are the people that I have a, you have have a new grudge with, you know what you heard, you heard a couple weeks ago where Sarah was going to kick Fergal's butt. Remember? (laughs) Yes. Well now, now, now she's really going to, I'm going to really get her on him now. (laughs) And James and (laughs) Don.
1: Well, I've got an extra thank Don because uh, I, he has helped me a great deal with this. Um, uh, what's going to come out with this episode, uh, nice. which you will learn much more. Cool, very cool. Um, but also, I should—I'd uh, like to do this at the front because I tend to forget at the end, which is. Um, uh, some of the uh, sources that I've used, which is the hybrid Librarian on Twitter, at N5 Librarian, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica and Wikipedia, the Football Grounds Guide website, and a book called The End by Tom Watt. Um, and indeed, my own experiences of watching football for about over 40 years. Um, and the little reference that, We all know Steve Harris is a big West Ham United supporter. And, of course, we all have used, I'm sure, the up the irons phrase. (laughs) Yeah. And, of course, up the irons is a phrase that relates directly to West Ham United. The West Ham started life as the works team of the Thames Ironworks and Shipbuilding Company and they were first known as Thames Ironworks Football Club. Um, And so when you say up the irons, uh, uh, the irons is one of West Ham's nicknames. The more well-known and popular one is the Hammers, but Mm. um, they are also known as the irons. So when you're saying up the irons, you can be supporting West Ham as well as Iron Maiden.
0: Much to your dismay, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I I deal with it. Yeah. Um, So... I'm not going to dwell on the lyrics of the song, but it just, it, it tells a story of someone who has been involved in football hooliganism, um, probably through the eighties. And then, uh, when, you know, when the song's written and comes out in, on the album, it's in the early nineties. He's now having doubts about, uh, really what it is, this wants to do Whether he wants to get away from it and, and it keeps pulling him back. Um, now, The word hooligan, which we're going to be using quite a lot, appears to have its origins in London, appearing for the first time in police records in 1894, describing a troublesome gang of South London youths. Um, It's said to have come from an Irish name, Hoolan, either from uh, musical songs or from a well-known bouncer and thief, Patrick Hoolan, Mm -hmm. in London. But... Let's get on with it. So.
0: Wait, one thing you just mentioned, you said that, that they had their doubts about what they were going to do. Yes. Was, was it was it particular? Was it a certain day of the week that they were wondering what they were going to uh, do? Yes. Gonna on Monday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, because the, the clue I was going to give you when you were doing your little guessing game was this song is really what we first had a good conversation about on Twitter. Um all those years ago if I remember rightly.
0: You know it would be funny as if we looked back and that conversation happened on a Monday. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Anyway. Firstly, I'll take you back to the 2nd of January, 1989. I attended my first North London derby, Arsenal versus Tottenham Hotspur, local rivals at Highbury, the home of Arsenal. My mm-hmm. dad and I stood in what had become our usual spot on the North Bank Terrace, to the left of the goal, near one of the columns that held up the roof. That Can I
0: ask a question right the off the, the bat? Yep. When you go to a game, one what? of those games, is it just general admission seating? You don't you don't get a ticket with a certain seat on it.
1: This is the days when the well. Okay, most grounds laid out were seated stands on either side of the pitch and then the two ends of the pitch were terrace where you stood. You stood and watched the game packed together or, depending on the team you're watching, maybe well spaced out. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, it's uh, standing behind the goal on the terrace.
0: Okay, okay.
1: And uh, we, that's all right. We were in a crowd of 45,129 to see the Gunners take all three points on their quest for a first league championship title since 1971 with goals from Paul Merson and Michael Thomas. After the match, we made our way back to our car for the drive home to Sussex. We crossed road into Riversdale Road and turned up to where we normally parked in Hybrid Quadrant. As we turned up the small hill, I felt people close behind us. Not unusual just after a match, but as they passed us, one headbutted me on the side of my face. Another punched my dad in the eye. They wanted a fight, and we didn't. After a short standoff, we hurried into a passageway behind one of the flats nearby, as if we lived there. And waited. After a little while, we made our way gingerly, if you like, back to the car, just making sure that they had gone. And as we drove away, my dad said to me, don't tell your mother about this. She'll never (laughs) let us come again. (laughs) And that was the last time we ever spoke about that incident. Really? Yep, really. It was my only direct involvement in any form of football violence. Huh. And the amusing thing is that at Sunday lunch the day after, my father was sporting a shiny black eye and trying to make the excuse to me mother that he got inadvertently hit in the eye during a goal celebration. I don't <laughs> think my mother was believing him, but still... anyway so let's go back what is football Um, for an Australian for example you may get one of three or four different answers there are several codes or rules of football played around the world and what you may think of as football depends on where you come from ask somebody from here in Melbourne and they'll probably talk to you about Australian rules football known as AFL Okay. Ask, ask somebody from uh, up the road in Sydney, and they'll be talking to you about rugby league. Ask yourself, an American, and it will be a game that we tend to refer to as gridiron or American football. Sure. And ask an Irishman. It could be Gaelic football, mm-hmm. etc., cetera, et cetera. Football was an informal game played between two groups. The rough origins can still be seen in a Shrove Tuesday match played in places like Ashburn and in Derbyshire in England or the bar game played in Kirkwall on the Orkney Islands of Scotland. There have been various ancient forms of the game played in China and Japan, Greece, Rome and amongst the indigenous peoples of Australia and the Americas. In England in the Middle Ages it was banned as it was violent and it diverted the young men from practising important martial skills such as archery. But by the reign of Henry VIII, the king was ordering a pair of football boots for himself to play.
5: <laughs>
1: the oldest football is from the court of Mary Queen of Scots in Edinburgh, nearly 500 years ago. The English public schools adopted football as exercise for boys and a variety of rules were drawn up at each school now english public schools are not what you may think of as public school an english public school is a private school and it's extremely posh the really wealthy and privileged send their boys to the public schools and then there are the private schools for the normal wealthy people and then there are the state schools for the likes of you and me
5: Mm -hmm.
1: so some schools are extremely old. The King's School in Canterbury can trace its origin back to the founding of the English Church in Kent in 597. Of the well-known schools, Winchester was founded in 1382, Eton in 1440, and Westminster in 1516. <clears throat> Eton College codified football in 1815, Aldenham in 1825, and rugby in 1845. The first attempt to produce unified rules was in 1838 at Cambridge University. So you can imagine that university students are coming from various different schools and they want to play together. And of course, they're all coming with different rules. So Cambridge tried to formulise a standard set of rules. And the Cambridge rules were to be the basis for the first nationally recognised set of rules drawn up by the newly formed Football Association founded in London in 1863. So the advent railways had also meant that different schools could play each other. And so when a school played another school, um, they started off playing one half of the game playing one school's rules and the second half of the game playing the other school's rules, but obviously that's can only end in confusion, and <laughs> yeah. so the need to draw up a, a set of rules that were recognised by everybody was was uh, became um, very important.
5: Mm-hmm. In,
1: in eighteen seventy one, the Rugby Football Union was formed, largely ad- adopting the rules of the Rugby School meanwhile a different set of rules were adopted in 1858 here in melbourne australia using the rules from english public schools it was the beginnings of what became australian rules football in ireland in 1885 a form of the game emerged similar in some ways to the rules played in melbourne Gaelic football, controlled by the Gaelic Athletic Association, may have had its roots in an old traditional Irish game and was seen by many in Ireland as their sport, as opposed to the English games of soccer and rugby. By the way, soccer is a shortening of the word association. So the full name of football is association football. Soccer Mm. is just the shortening of it, which was first used in English public schools Soccer and Rugger, Rugger being short for rugby. Hmm. There are two main versions of um, football, gridiron football played in North America. Canadian football developed from a game first played in the University of Toronto in 1861. whilst American football emerged from a game first played in New Jersey in 1869. Both are developed from rugby union with the addition of a legal forward pass. In 1895, several rugby union clubs in the north of England split from the Rugby Football Union at a meeting in Huddersfield. They wanted their working class players to be able to be paid for time lost from their jobs due to playing rugby, but the RFU refused and the Northern Rugby Football Union was formed and started to alter the rules to make the game more attractive to attract bigger crowds to gain money. In 1922, it became the Rugby Football League. One of the founding clubs of the Northern Rugby Union was Manningham Football Club from Bradford. Founded in 1880, they played Rugby Union until the split in 1895 when the club switched to playing what became Rugby League. And it became its first championship winning side in 1896. After falling on hard times, Manningham decided to leave the Rugby Football League in 1903 and switch codes again this time to association football, and they changed their name to Bradford City. In 1907, those Manningham players who wanted to keep playing rugby league founded the Bradford Northern Club. But out of all the development of various football codes during the mid to late 19th century, one code emerged to dominate the sporting world of the 20th century. After the founding of the Football Association in 1863, its first national competition, the Football Association Challenge Cup competition, give given its shortened title, the FA Cup, began in 1871. It's the oldest national football competition in the world. Today, over 700 teams enter the FA Cup each year, with the final tie being played at Wembley Stadium in London. With fourteen FA Cup wins, twenty-one finals, and thirty semi-finals, the Arsenal are the most successful FA Cup team. I just add that little bit at the end there. You had to throw that <laughs> in. <thing out. laughs> so, with the increasing need to pay players, professionalism was finally permitted by the Football Association in eighteen eighty-five. But clubs needed regular fixtures to make professionalism viable. In eighteen eighty-eight. An idea from Aston Villa's Scottish director, William McGregor, inspired the formation of the football league with 12 teams playing each other home and away. All the teams were from Lancashire in the northwest of England and the Midlands of England. And the first league champions were the unbeaten Preston North End. As the league became more successful, more teams joined. And in 1863, it split into a first and second division with promotion and relegation between the two. The intake of clubs in the early 1890s included the likes of Newcastle United, Sunderland, Newton Heath, who became Manchester United, Liverpool and Woolwich Arsenal, the first professional club from the south of England. Football was now starting to gain popularity outside of England. The first proper match took place in Glasgow in 1892. Between England and Scotland, and the Scottish Football Association was formed in 1873, the Football Association of Wales in 1876, and the Irish Football Association in 1880. Denmark, the Netherlands, Argentina, where I think the first football match took place outside of the British Isles, mm-hmm. Chile, Belgium, Switzerland, Singapore, and New Zealand were some of the earliest national governing bodies set up in the late 19th century. In 1904, FIFA, the International Federation of Football Associations, was formed and football was becoming the world's game.
2: Interesting. You're not so brave the way you behave. It makes you sing. Gotta get up quick. It's all for battle when Someone will die Someone will die Someone will die Maybe someone will die
1: In 1930, 13 nations competed in the first World Cup hosted by Uruguay. None of the home nations, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, competed in the World Cups until after the Second World War. The home nations thought it was rather beneath them, I believe, um, and they saw saw themselves as as being above the, uh, the fray of the other countries playing each other. Um, much a shameful attitude to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Um, Uruguay were the first world champions, defeating Argentina 4 2 in the final. The FIFA World Cup is one of the two biggest international sporting events, along with the Olympics. The World Cup final today draws in over 500 million viewers worldwide and three and a half billion people watching games across the whole tournament. God. So if that's the bright side of football, what about the game's darker side? In June 1969, Honduras and El Salvador in Central America played a two-legged qualifier for the upcoming 1970 World Cup to be played for the first time in Central America, in Mexico. With tensions already high between the two nations, Honduras won the first leg 1-0 but In the second leg, El Salvador won. On the 27th of June, a playoff was held in Mexico City on neutral ground with diplomatic relations plummeting between the two neighbors. El Salvador won the playoff 3-2 after extra time. It was to be the spark that ignited a very brief war between the two nations, fought from the 14th to the 18th of July, 1969 with about 3,000 military and civilian casualties. This could be considered to be the most devastating football match in history. But violence has been a feature of the beautiful game right from its not-so-beautiful beginnings. In 1314, King Edward II of England banned football as it was causing riotous behaviour. It was a rough and violent game with very few, if any, rules. People were regularly injured. and a- In the 19th century, the riot in Derby and the Dru called in to control the crowd. Andrew. Yes.
0: Are you talking about people were killed playing
1: or people were uh, killed attending? They were being probably killed playing or just getting in the way of those playing. 'Cause this God. these original these old medieval games um would have taken place often in the streets of a town or a village. Sure. And I think I read of one account where the object being used as a football flew through a a window of a building where a gentleman was getting a shave, and the shave Oh my <laughs> and it hit the person giving him a shave and the cutthroat razor literally cut his throat. Ooh. Yes. Wow. It's rough. Pretty extreme. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, There were pitch invasions at early rudimentary football grounds uh, were commonplace in the 1880s. And in 1885, the players of Preston North End and Aston Villa were attacked beaten, spat at, and with one Preston player losing consciousness. Preston and Queen's Park of Glasgow supporters clashed at a railway station in 1886, and in 1905, a number of Preston supporters were put on trial, including a drunken, disorderly 70-year-old woman after a match against Blackburn Rovers. (laughs) <laughs> in 1909 rangers and celtic fans rioted at the scottish cup final and after the first world war trouble continued millwall's home ground the den in southeast london was regularly closed due to crowd trouble this occurred in 1920 and 1934 leicester supporters vandalized a train in 1934 and bob wall The secretary at Arsenal for many years wrote about football violence at Highbury in the 1930s. And he said, some of our worst days for thuggery at Highbury occurred when the old Islington mob clashed with the large contingent of sailors who would follow Portsmouth on their away games in the middle 1930s. The sailors used to arrive with bottles of beer in each hand and position themselves on the south terrace. The Islington mob, a bunch of the toughest tearaways imaginable, would wait for them to finish their drinks. They would then set upon them with razor blades set into the peaks of their caps, knuckle dusters and chains at the ready. The sailors, not to be outdone, would knock the bottom off the dead bottles and wade into action, shouting The Navy's here, or words to that effect on such days it was not uncommon to see a shuttle of service a shuttle service of ambulances between the Royal Northern Hospital and Arsenal Stadium
0: golly I gotta stay home <laughs>
1: in the mid 1950s Liverpool and Everton supporters were involved in a number of incidents and Millwall's ground was closed once again By the mid-1960s, there was an average of 25 incidents of hooliganism per season, as it was now starting to be called in England. Football wasn't the only source of violence between young men at the time. From the mid-1960s to the early 70s, mods and rockers would regularly clash during holiday weekends at various seaside resorts, such as Clacton, Hastings, Margate, but most notably Brighton. The 1979 movie Quadrophenia is set during the 1964 clash of Brighton and the 2010 remake of Brighton Rock is also set during the Mods and Rockers clashes of the 1960s. The rise of youth violence led to a moral panic in the press and amongst politicians. Um, And I wonder if the uh, media reports salacious reporting actually drove some of the violence rather than uh, dampened it down. Hmm. There have been a number of disasters at football grounds up to the infamous incidents that I'll come to in the 1980s. In 1902, at the Ibrox Stadium in Glasgow, a wooden terrace collapsed during an England-Scotland international leading to the deaths of 26 people. In, mm. in 1946, at Burnham Park, Bolton, a visit of visit of Stoke City with the famous Stanley Matthews in their team, uh, for an FA Cup tie, where a crowd estimated to be about 85,000 showed up at the stadium that could only hold considerably less. When the crowd pressed forward the far over capacity embankment, two metal crush barriers broke, leading to... 33 fans being killed and another 400 injured.
4: Good Lord.
1: In Lima, Peru, in 1964, the referee ruled out a goal in the last minute of a game between Peru and Argentina. An angered supporter entered the pitch chasing the referee. The police aggressively beat him down, which angered supporters in the stands and led to rioting. The police then fired tear gas into the stands, which caused chaos. There were stampedes and crushes, and it led to the deaths of over 300 people. It is goodness. It is still today the worst recorded stadium disaster in history. And in 1971, back at the Ibrox Stadium in Glasgow, a total of 66 Rangers supporters were killed and over 200 injured in a crush during the last minutes of an old firm match against Celtic. The incident happened when, I believe, Rangers scored a late equaliser and someone trying to turn back to see the goal fell on the staircase whilst exiting the stadium. It caused a change. Falling people and resulted in the pile up of bodies mm. but um, perhaps we'll just take a break from this historical narrative for a moment um, the referee is blown for half time maybe we need to uh, you know, go and see a man about a dog or get ourselves a nice hot pie whilst we listen out for the half time scores from the other grounds as you bite into your pie and burn your tongue yet again, <laughs> you look around at this stadium and the faces, familiar and unfamiliar, all about you. It's home. It feels a part of you as if it belongs to you. You feel comfortable here. In 2017, Arsenal played a couple of pre-season friendlies here in Australia, in Sydney, and we went and mm. flew up to Sydney from Melbourne. The plane from Melbourne was full of Arsenal supporters and I wondered how many were going to see the team for the first time ever and how many, like me, were old hybrid regulars in years gone by now exiled to the other side of the world. (laughs) It was strange whilst in Sydney to see familiar faces from watching football over the years all around me. And I was reminded of this um, when I've heard some Iron Maiden stories. For example, like Melissa from the um, um, Metal Chat podcast and yeah. uh, who coincidentally is right now in the United Kingdom to go and see Iron Maiden. She goes around the world. She follows the band like a football supporter follows hmm. a team home yeah. and away um, all over the even overseas, all over the world, enjoying the company of uh, like-minded people, all crowded together, singing their hearts out to familiar songs. Mm-hmm. And what about the songs? Now, as an Arsenal supporter, one of our famous songs is "One Nil to the Arsenal," to the tune of "Go West, Wa- Go West." One Nil to the Arsenal, One Nil. To the Arsenal And that comes from a game against Paris Saint-Germain Back in 1995 uh, 1994 in the European Cup Because um, they sang to the same tune Paris, Paris Saint-Germain And then Arsenal scored And they sang 1-0 to the Arsenal Anyway <laughs> Now let's talk about West Ham Of course being Iron Maiden We have to talk about West Ham And sure. their tune is I'm forever blowing bubbles It's a song from a Broadway musical, um, the passing show of 1918, I think it was called, and is possibly the oldest continuously sung football song ever.
5: Hmm.
1: They still sing it today. It's the traditional West Ham song. There are different versions if you support other clubs, but I think it goes, I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air, they fly so high nearly reach the sky and like <laughs> I was going to go into the Arsenal version and like West Ham they fade and die um, and like my mm-hmm. dreams they fade and die I think it is um, and of course you'll never walk alone also a show tune from the 1945 musical Carousel it was uh, covered by the Liverpool band Jerry and the Pacemakers in 1963 and mm-hmm. Um, At Liverpool's home ground, the home end is called the Cop. And in the 60s, the Cop would sing songs by various Liverpool bands that were coming through at the time. And this is the song that stuck with them. And they still sing You Never Walk Alone to this day. Interesting. But, of course, a lot of songs are directed towards a club's bitter rivals, in my case, as an Arsenal supporter, is towards the other London clubs, such as Chelsea, West Ham, but by far the most ridicule and vitriol is aimed at Tottenham Hotspur. And now I racked my brain and I can only think of one song that is repeatable here without, <laughs> without us getting told off by Kirsty for swearing. Um, <laughs> and that is a song... Um, uh, the, uh, the Doris Day song, K Sarah Sarah. And it's the. I'll try and attempt to sing the Arsenal version. When I was just a little boy, I asked my mother, What would I be? Will I be Chelsea, West Ham, or Spurs? Here's what she said to me Go wash your mouth our son, and go fetch your father's gun. We'll shoot some Tottenham scum. You're a red, my son. now I I could sing another song which is my old man said be a Tottenham fan and then I can't sing any of the other words because they're all all naughty ones Um, (laughs) now these local rivalries uh, can for many um, the ones against the most bitter rivals are the most important ones They look for these fixtures when the fixture list comes out every summer. You look to when your team plays your local rival. They're known as derbies. And in England, some of the most important derbies are Liverpool versus Everton, Manchester City versus Manchester United, Newcastle United versus Sunderland, Southampton versus Portsmouth, Norwich City versus Ipswich Town, Aston Villa versus Birmingham City, Sheffield United, versus Sheffield Wednesday, and where I come from, brighton Hove Albion versus Crystal Palace, and there's many more. In Wales, it would be Swansea City versus Cardiff City. And these rivalries, of course, exist around the world. I attended, sure. I attended the first ever Melbourne derby in October 2010, but the big daddy of all football rivalries is, is the old firm in Glasgow, Scotland, between Rangers and Celtic. This is a rivalry born not only through being the two biggest and most successful clubs in the Scottish League coming from the same city. This is a rivalry drenched in religion, politics and nationalism. The Protestant pro-unionist Rangers in the red, white and blue of the union flag against the Catholic Irish Nationalist Celtic in the green, white, and gold of the Irish Republic. Anyway, (laughs) enough of all that. The teams are coming out for the second half. Um, There's a bit of activity on the bench. Looks like there's going to be a substitution. Don McIntyre is coming on to introduce a bit more creative flair in midfield. Um, as well as a game of two halves. We're also going to have a tale of two cities for the remainder of the story. We'll concentrate mainly on London and Liverpool. And that's where I took advantage of the January transfer window and signed Don on loan for the rest of the story. And uh, I'm sure you'll agree he'll make quite an impact on the game. And, (laughs) And as we kick off straight away, McIntyre is on the ball. I can't do a Scouse accent, by the way. (laughs) I first became fully aware of football in the early 60s. It was a time of major change in Liverpool. The signs of enemy bombing during the Second World War were still around, although the city centre had pretty much been rebuilt. The clearance of substandard old housing and the relocation of whole communities to housing estates on the outskirts of the city had begun in earnest. This became a major factor in changing not only the look but the feel of the city. It's often been said that the city planners caused more damage than the Luftwaffe. And Liverpool wasn't the only city that suffered that fate. The decline of the docks started to accelerate and the opening of large factories didn't compensate as as employment began to decline. The Beatles had left the city largely to be never seen again. In this environment, the two football clubs of Everton formed in 1878 and Liverpool formed in 1892 seemed to become more important than ever. My recollection is that levels of support were split equally, although Liverpool fans seemed to be better at making their presence felt, especially in the media. Both clubs had suffered a time in the doldrums during the 50s, but new money and new managers turned things around, and they both began regularly winning the top domestic honours in front of huge, passionate crowds. These crowds, which mainly stood on terracing, And at the time, when most didn't have a lot of spare money, football was still fairly cheap. Just a few pounds could buy a season ticket and with beer still relatively cheap going to the game, uh, buying a copy of the Football Echo newspaper for results when it appeared at six o'clock and a couple of beers in the evening. It was all within the reach of many. During the 70s, the decline of Liverpool as a city continued apace. Unemployment Housing problems continued and by the end of the decade, many of the housing experiments of the 60s had failed. And some of those developments needed to be replaced or drastically modified. Migration meant that the population of Liverpool fell by over 100,000. The general infrastructure was falling apart and nobody, not least the government, seemed interested or able to do much about it. Uh, Back to me. Um, The economic decline felt so acutely in Liverpool impacted the entire country. The old industries were failing and the guarantee of a job for life for many young working class men was no longer there. Britain at this time was known as the sick man of Europe. During the miners' strike in January 1974, the government imposed a three-day working week on industry in order to conserve energy. The measure lasted for two months, but it was the first real sign that Britain's economic decline had to hit rock bottom. Two miners' strikes, the first in 73-74, the second in 1984-85, bookend this low point in modern British history. It's during this period that football hooliganism, as we have come to recognise it, had its violent high points. Hmm. Now, rather amusingly, Manchester United were relegated in 1974, and their hooligan firm, known as the Red Army, caused chaos at various second division grounds during the 1974 75 season. At the beginning of that season, a 17 year old Blackpool supporter, Kevin Olsen, was stabbed to death by a Bolton Wanderers fan. No one was ever convicted of his murder. This led to the then Labour government to first consider identity cards for football supporters. Bolton Wanderers manager that day and former Blackpool player Jimmy Armfield described it as the worst Saturday of my life. I went from visiting one of my players in hospital who had a horrific broken leg to visiting the family of the dead boy. Yeah. Earlier in 1974 a Nottingham Forest player had been attacked during a pitch invasion at Newcastle. A year later, a relegation London derby between Tottenham Hotspur and Chelsea saw supporters fighting on the pitch. These United were banned from European football for a year after their supporters caused trouble at the 1975 European Cup final in Paris, and Manchester United were also banned for a year in Europe in 1977 after rioting at a UEFA Cup fixture, also in France. Meanwhile, north of the border, bitter rivalry between Rangers and Celtic led to the rise in violence in Scotland. Supporters of the two clubs rioted at the 1969 Scottish Cup final, and worse was to come when they clashed again in 1980 at the Cup final, with supporters fighting on the pitch. And there was a long history of antagonism between Edinburgh rivals, Heart of Midlothian and and Hibernian, dating back to trouble at their very first fixture in 1875. The Scottish national team wasn't immune either. The Tartan army were involved in a couple of ugly incidents at Wembley in 1977 and 1979 during the annual England versus Scotland clash. Most notably in 1977, fans invaded the pitch after Scotland had won, ripped up the pitch and smashed up the
0: goals.
1: (laughs) This led to the creation of the Scotland Travel Club in 1980. And since then, Scotland supporters have had a very good reputation in Europe, especially in comparison to their English counterparts. The economic decline of Britain seemed to be replicated by the English national football team. World champions in 1966, the 1970s saw a miserable collapse, with England failing to qualify for the World Cups in 1974 and 1978, whilst watching on as Scotland qualified for both. (laughs) But as the 1980s arrived, English football was on a bit of a high. English clubs dominated European club competitions of the eight European champions between 1977 and 1984, only one English. England had at last qualified for a major tournament under the new manager Ron Greenwood. They were going to go to Italy for the European Championships in the summer of 1980. What could possibly go wrong? At England's opening match of the tournament, they played Belgium in Turin. England took the lead, but after Belgium equalised on the half hour, the England supporters rioted. The Italian police threw tear gas into the crowd, but the English only lobbed the tear gas canisters back onto the pitch. As players suffered the effects of the gas, the referee halted the game for five minutes. After the game, England manager Ron Greenwood said, I am proud of my profession, but when things like this happen, I am ashamed of football. They are idiots and we don't want anything to do with them. Football's hooligan gangs had organised themselves into firms, uh, sometimes known as mobs in Scotland. Some of the most notorious were Leeds United's service crew, Manchester United's Red Army, Newcastle United's Gremlins, Sunderland's Seaburn Casuals, Wolverhampton Wanderers Subway Army, Middlesbrough's The Frontline, Portsmouth's 657 crew. In Scotland, Aberdeen's Soccer Casuals, Heart of Midlabian's Service Crew, Hibernian's Capital City Service, Celtic Soccer Crew, Rangers Intercity Firm, and for Alan Bell, St Mirren's Love Street Division. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so so were these like almost like fan clubs or were these,
1: these gangs were, of people? These were hooligan gangs. Uh, no, nothing <laughs> official to do with the club whatsoever, of course. The club, okay. club hated their existence. Um, gotcha. But these were the hooligan gangs that would go around causing a hell of a lot of trouble. Golly. With their proximity to all the main media outlets, the firms of London became the most infamous. Arsenal's The Herd, with their bizarre EIE war cry. Tottenham's Yid Army, a reference to their large Jewish support. Mill's Bushwhackers, a trip to their cold blow laying ground was not for the faint hearted. Chelsea's Headhunters, infiltrated by the racist National Front and most famously of all, West Ham's intercity firm with their, congratulations, you have just met the ICF calling card left on the injured bodies of their victims. Um, You may have noticed that some of those firms carry the name Casuals. there is a London football club dating back to 1883 called the Casuals, later becoming Corinthian Casuals, but it's nothing to do with them. During the 1980s, hooligans didn't wear club colours. They went to games in expensive designer clothing. Wearing the right clobber was important in the firm and labels such as Stone Island, CP Company, Lyle and Scott, um I've never heard of these until I did this. (laughs) Fashion and me are are strangers. Um, But I have heard of the likes of Fred Perry, Lacoste, Burberry, and there are many others. Um, Let's go back to Don. While inflation was rampant and unemployment high, especially in the north of England, uh, nationally it reached over 3 million people in 1982 – um, ticket and alcohol prices were still low and rail <laughs> rail travel was cheap. This allowed greater numbers than ever to travel to away games. Nationally, unemployment uh, reached perhaps 20%, but the government massaged the figures and officially it was
0: 14%. Wow. Those are high.
1: Indeed. But in pockets of Liverpool, especially Toxteth, An area with a large black population, it was as high as 60%. Mm. Mass unemployment, poor housing, and overuse by the police of stop-and-search powers were seen by many as racially biased. The place was about to explode. In July 1981, a young black man was stopped and arrested in Toxteth by the police. A crowd soon gathered and feelings got out of hand ensued and lasted for most of a week. Many buildings were razed to the ground, shops looted and dozens of cars burnt out. Although a lot of people were injured, including up to a thousand police officers, uh, there was one only one fatality. Rubber bullets were fired and CS gas used for the first time in the United Kingdom outside of Northern Ireland. While well, police reinforcements were drafted in from across the north of England, at the time, Don lived just outside the area affected, uh, at the main police assembly point, and to see such numbers was both reassuring and frightening at the same time, especially when we went one morning to find that the violence had got within a few hundred yards. Once things finally settled, the Conservative Prime Minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, sent one of her cabinet ministers, Michael Heseltine to Liverpool, he was horrified by what he saw and set to work mm. on the regeneration programmes which eventually transformed the city. Back to me. This, this was a story repeated elsewhere. In London, rioting occurred in Brixton, which also had a large black population and extremely high local unemployment rates. It was during this period um, that West Ham's Intercity Firm or ICF were building a reputation. They would often try and take the home end of clubs they were visiting. So as I was describing the football ground earlier with the two seated stands on either side of the pitch, the two mm-hmm. ends with standing terrace, traditionally one end would be a home terrace for home supporters and the other end would be all or part given over to the away supporters. So West Ham supporters of the ICF would try and infiltrate the home end, causing, causing much mischief. Sure. Probably the most notorious of all these incidents was in May 1982 when the ICF attempted to take Arsenal's North Bank Terrace at local rivals, Highbury. Um... I'll just read a couple of extracts from the book Steaming In by Colin Ward. I clicked through the turnstiles via Glesby Road entrance and climbed up the steps which led onto the terraces. But instead of the normal orderly procession of people filing up the steps, there was an impromptu fight going on. Uh, The big scarfless group in front of me, who were West Ham fans, were faced with five or six young Arsenal fans led by a fit-looking, bull-necked guy who was casually dressed with tracksuit bottoms tucked into white baseball boots. Come on, you East London slags. I thought you lot were hard. Who's next? The West Ham fans, who numbered at least 20, were thwarted for at least two minutes until the police turned up. And everyone scattered. Who saw anything? shouted the police. Everyone just shrugged and walked on.
5: <laughs>
1: he goes on to write. Steve entered the ground from the Avenal Road turnstiles just as the fighting broke out. He had just taken up his usual position when a group of fans came pushing past him. Steady on, mate, said Steve. It's all right, pal. We're West Ham. Steve didn't say anything, but without warning, just thumped the first guy, who went straight down to the floor. Steve, who is six foot and 15 stone, thumped the next bloke, who went the same way. And a third suffered a similar fate before other Arsenal fans stepped into the fray to help Steve. When the police turned up, they arrested the three prostate West Ham fans who didn't know what had hit them. The the ICF had had no trouble taking the North Bank in previous years, but this was different. Arsenal's hooligan element, the herd and another group called the Gooners were ready and waiting. Everything kicked off before the game started, with Arsenal fans attacking the ICF members already in the North Bank. More ICF arrived and Arsenal's fans scattered. Just as the ICF thought they had won the day yet again, They were laid into by Arsenal's hooligan fans. And the police had to step in to protect the ICF from further attack. After the game, more trouble occurred in the streets surrounding Arsenal Stadium. Young Arsenal fan, John Dickinson, was stabbed to death. Mm. I'll read two more extracts from Colin Ward's... uh, No, sorry, I'll do two extracts from John Sperling's book, Highbury. After the match had ended, an Arsenal fan was stabbed to death near the Arsenal tube station. Football violence had reached a new pitch at Highbury that day. Colin Philpott recalls, The cameras weren't at Highbury that day, but if they had been, they'd have shown a series of events which could easily have resulted in the deaths of many, many people. I imagine, Imagine being with your boy and all this going off around you, and you realise... Football just isn't safe anymore. I didn't take Liam for a couple of years after that, and I don't think we went back onto the North Bank until George Graham became Arsenal manager in 1986. It just wasn't worth the risk. I needed to wait and be certain that football was safe again. Sure. And Simon Delaney and a few of his friends also stopped going to Arsenal matches for a while. I felt disgusted and ashamed of myself. We believed we were sticking up for our rights, and then you learn that as a direct consequence of the trouble, someone has died. At that point, you have to hold up your hand and accept that things have gone too far. It almost seemed that after that, after the West Ham match, the North Bank purged itself of trouble. We realized that football had become too tribal and that all the posturing could have Devastating effects. It was time to grow up, really. Despite the history of terrorist trouble on London Derby Day, this was the first and last time that the ultimate cost of hooliganism became apparent at Highbury. Scott Horton writes, I was there by his side one minute the next. He lay dying next to me. Everyone screaming for help whilst the young, inexperienced copper at the scene had a full-on nervous breakdown. Totally lost his bottle while we all tried to save him. Sadly, John didn't make it. My heart broke that day. And a George Lampshire writes, I was in the North Bank that day as an 11-year-old boy. I witnessed some vile acts from what is quite simply human waste. Mm. Yeah. It's not surprising, therefore, that attendances at football matches in England had been on a continual decline from the post-war boom of the 1950s and 60s. Rising, yeah. rising unemployment, the cost of living, as well as other distractions for people's spare time, as well as the scourge of hooliganism were all blamed. English football seemed to be slowly dying, and the old decaying grounds were emblematic of this trend. In 1949, an average of 22,318 people had attended each league match on average of the 92 clubs in England. That's 38,792 at each top division game alone. In 1984, Average top division attendances had more than halved to 18,834. And across all 92 clubs, it had fallen to just 9,044. Now, by comparison, in 2019... Attendances were back up to post-war levels, with 16,168 per match across all 92 clubs and 38,181 at Premier League games alone. So what happened? Trouble kept following the England team across Europe and beyond, carrying with it a racist xenophobic element. The small handful of black players that had made their way into the England team were often subject to abuse from their own supporters more than the opposition. Mm. The first black player to play a full international for England was Viv Anderson. He describes his second appearance for his club, Nottingham Forest as dogs abuse, really vicious black, this black, that I'd never experienced it before. Mm. Later, Watford striker John Barnes would follow uh, Anson into the England team. And during a match in Brazil, he scored a wonder goal, leading England to a famous 2-0 victory. England's supporters, who had been causing mayhem during the summer tour of South America, chanted, we only won 1-0, not recognising that the goal from a blank player counted for England. Jeez. Racist organisations such as the National Front and Combat 18 infiltrated many hooligan firms, such as those at Leeds United, Millwall, and probably most notably Chelsea. The first and last memory I have of a rate of racist abuse uh, by an Arsenal supporter was at an away game at Queens Park Rangers early in 1989, and it was directed at a black press photographer before the match, and it was clearly heard by him. At Arsenal, and this also occurs at Chelsea and West Ham, but at Arsenal, the use of racist language was confined to anti-Semitism. This was, and for some still is, excused because it's solely directed at Tottenham, whose supporters use terms like Yid and yiddo to describe themselves, although these are terms of abuse for Jewish people. Hmm. Arsenal have tried to get rid of that from Highbury for years. I don't know if it still goes on at the new ground at Emmett Stadium, um, and I don't know what action Tottenham take to get rid of the use of the term amongst their own supporters. Hmm. In amongst this atmosphere of racism, two black men became legends in football hooliganism. Kaz Pennant, at West Ham, leading the ICF, and Dayton Connell, known as the Bear, at Arsenal, leading the Herd. Both tried to keep racist elements out of their clubs. Connell having much more success at Arsenal, where the likes of the National Front and British National Party never got a hold. Arsenal has consistently enjoyed the most ethnically diverse support of all English clubs, and does include a large Jewish support. Whilst racial abuse is almost non-existent in grounds, um, these days it hasn't gone away. Black players now get abused online rather than on the terraces. And in parts of Europe, the abuse can still be clearly heard at some grounds, with the local authorities and UEFA, the governing body, seemingly reluctant to completely stamp it out. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, yes. Um, and I must say, my own personal experience, I grew up in rural Sussex, mm-hmm. um, if you want to say, very, very white. Um, going to football matches, going through London streets, um, seeing the diversity that was in the big city, and being in matches, football grounds, and there being people from all backgrounds there, and a deep players playing for your team that were um, Afro-Caribbean, black players. I don't know. It just strikes you as just being bizarre that you would hate somebody (laughs) for that reason. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's never struck me as, as being um, a, a, the work of a logical mind. Um, I don't know. I can't it, explain it. I, it's just It bizarre. seems
0: like the ultimate form of ignorance just to look at someone and the color of their skin. I mean, that's Ooh, just how
1: you're born. Yes, and I've only just remembered something. I heard, um, I think I, I heard somebody talking about a conversation that he had heard from somebody mm-hmm. saying that if there are more than three black players playing for Arsenal, he's never coming again. And Really? Yeah, but the, the weird thing being you, you can have – up to three and that's okay, but any more is, you can't tolerate.
0: Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> stupid. yeah. stupid. So stupid, yeah. It's so ignorant. It's so, I've never understood that. It's like, if you get along
1: with somebody, who cares what they look like?
0: Mm. And if- I mean, and that, and that covers a lot of things.
1: It does. And if, if the likes of um, Ian Wright or Thierry Henry, fantastic black players, are scoring wonder yeah. goals for your team, and quite frankly- <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> – uh, you, you know, it's it's just strange. It's just it is, so strange. It is bizarre. It, I've never gotten that. Um, Yes. And that incident that I mentioned that happened at QPR, it, it just stood out so clearly and as, as completely out of – anything else I've ever heard before at a game, yeah. before before and since, although I have heard, okay, I've, I used to go to away games and sometimes I would go, especially to Liverpool games, I, uh, games that Arsenal play at Liverpool. I would get tickets mm. in the main stand because I had cousins who were Liverpool supporters who lived up there. And I have heard... um people in the main stand at at, uh, Liverpool, this is going back quite a few years, but they were cheering on John Barnes who had moved on from Watford to Liverpool and yet abusing the black players playing for Arsenal. It's it's the same sort of stupid logic. Yeah. Anyway, um, on with the show. Um, (laughs) Yeah. During the 1980s, television cameras were not at every game like they are these days. Perhaps only four or five games would be recorded for programs such as Match of the Day on the BBC or the Big Match on ITV. So often incidents of hooliganism were unrecorded. On a Wednesday night in March 1985, there was an FA Cup tie between Luton Town and Millwall, and it was being filmed for that evening's sports night program it became one of the most notorious incidents of hooliganism at an English football ground. Luton had their own hooligan firm known as the Meeks or Men in Gear, (laughs) but they were up against the most famous bushwhackers from Millwall. Despite requests from the Millwall football club to make the match all ticket, Luton refused and a huge away following arrived at the ground. Trouble started as as Millwall fans overflowed onto the pitch, throwing missiles into the Luton fans. The Millwall supporters only returned to the terrace after an appeal for calm from Millwall manager at the time, George Graham. Trouble continually interrupted the game and the scenes of hooligans on the pitch, ripping it up, ripping up seats, using them as missiles were played out on that evening's news programs. Despite Mills' reputation, of the 31 men arrested before, during and after the match as trouble continued through the streets of the town, the majority identified as supporters of other clubs such as Chelsea and West Ham. Mm -hmm.
5: Um,
1: It was obviously going to be an event where there's going to be trouble and hooligan firms from all over London decided to go to Luton and cause trouble. Luton town chairman David Evans immediately banned away supporters from Luton altogether and he introduced a club membership scheme. But worse was to come. Although nothing to do with football hooliganism, the devastating fire at Bradford City's Valley Parade ground on the 11th of May 1985 killed 56 people and injured well over 250 It demonstrated the malaise, the decay and complacency of English football, as fire ripped through an old wooden stand, already condemned and due to be replaced that summer. The fire overshadowed a terrible incident that occurred on the same day at Birmingham City, as rioting between Birmingham City and visiting Leeds United supporters resulted in a 15-year-old boy, Ian Hambridge, who was excited to be going to his first match, being killed by a collapsing wall.
5: Mm.
1: But it was all just days before English football and its hooligan problem reached its deepest depths. And I'll let Don take over. mm mm-hmm. Despite the economic and social problems, the one thing which was going well in Liverpool was to be seen on the football pitch. Liverpool themselves continued to collect trophies, and in the middle of the decade, there was a major revival in the fortunes of Everton. The appointment of a former crowd favourite, Howard Kendall, a member of the 1970 championship winning side, was the catalyst for that revival. In 1985, both teams qualified for the finals of European competitions. Everton beat Rapid Vienna 3-1 in Rotterdam to take the European Cup Winners' Cup on the 15th of May. They had a talented team that had also just become the champions of England, and all looked set fair for them to launch their own period of domination, and the blue half of the city was full of optimism. Only a fort fortnight later everything fell apart on the 29th of may liverpool would play italian champions juventus of turin in the european cup final the heysel stadium in brussels was a regular venue for european com- european finals but it's despite, despite its reputation it was in a deplorable condition Terracing was crumbling due to the lack of maintenance, and the exterior wall was so weak that ticketless fans were seen making holes in it to climb through. (laughs) Crucially, barriers meant to separate fans were in places totally useless. A group of Liverpool fans broke through a fence into a vacant neutral zone on the terrace and advanced on an area of mainly Juventus fans in an attempt to intimidate them. The exact reason for this is still disputed, but it's normally thought to be an act of retaliation. Unfortunately, rather than stand their ground and engage in a battle of taunts, feet and fists, the Juventus fans chose to run. And they ran straight into a wall, a wall which collapsed, crushing many people in the process as the pressure from behind denied them escape. 39 people died and over 600 were injured, some Good. some very seriously. Bizarrely and callously, the authorities chose to still play the game which Juventus won 1-0. For the people of Liverpool, when asked for a reaction, the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher immediately condemned the behaviour of Liverpool fans. Many saw this as prejudicial to any inquiry. This was the final straw, as it were. Mrs Thatcher had long been a figure of hate in the city and was now almost the personification of evil. It had long been perceived that she thought Liverpool should just be left to rot, and it had taken great efforts on the the part of her minister, Michael Heseltine, to achieve the improvements he did. As it transpired, the official inquiry did blame Liverpool fans, largely ignoring the culpability of UEFA, the governing body of European football, and the Belgian authorities, although two senior police officers in charge on the night were convicted in April 1989 14 fans were convicted and given three year sentences half of which were suspended for five years allowing them to return to the UK by the end of May 1985 Mrs Thatcher had asked the football association to withdraw English clubs from European competition again seemingly prejudicing any inquiry in the end the punishment was a five-year ban for all English clubs, six years, mm. six years for Liverpool. Consequently, Everton were not able to capitalise on its return to prominence and players started leaving for teams in other countries. Apart from the 1987 Championship and 95 FA Cup, it has never really recovered from the player loss. The atmosphere between the fans of the clubs clubs has ever since been less friendly. Back to me, the the Conservative government revived the 1970s Labour government football supporters' ID card proposal and set to work on drafting legislation for compulsory ID cards. Um, But did the events of May 1985 and the subsequent ban from Europe push the English football authorities and indeed Europe's governing body, UEFA, into real action? Not really. UEFA were satisfied. They had solved the problem by getting rid of the English disease. The trouble was that the English disease, if it ever really was just English, had now infected the rest of European football. The likes of Italy, Netherlands, Germany, all had their own hooligan problems. And with the collapse of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Football violence was to take hold in Eastern Europe, where it remains a serious problem today. Mm. The European ban saw some of England's best players leave. Some went to the continent, but others headed north to Scotland, where Rangers became the main beneficiary. England's hooligans still travelled to Europe, but now they were concentrated on England's national team away games. The 1988 European Championships in Germany were marred by violence, largely away from the stadiums, leading to calls for England to be banned altogether. In England, trouble at a division two playoff match between Chelsea and Middlesbrough saw Chelsea chairman Ken Bates try and install electric fences around the perimeter to stop pitch invasions. If 1985 had been English football's lowest point, then 1989 was to be English football's turning point. The worst disaster of all, shortly followed by the first green shoots of the game's rebirth. Back to Don. On the 15th of April, 1989 came possibly the darkest day in the history of both Liverpool Football Club and the City of Liverpool. The Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, Yorkshire, the home of Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, was a traditional neutral venue for FA Cup semi-finals. Its position made it relatively easy to access from anywhere in the north of England, and for a time its facilities were considered modern, but it was now just old-fashioned as anywhere With cramped access, poor signage, tight terracing and perimeter fencing, Liverpool were due to play Nottingham Forest there in the 1989 semi-final. There's plenty of accounts of the exact events of the day and the repercussions of what happened, so I won't repeat them all. There had been reports of crushing incidents on the particularly cramped Leppings Lane Terrace only the previous year, in a game between the same two sides at the same semi-final. Who expected Liverpool, um, who expected to have more fans in attendance, were allocated that smaller end. To cut the events short, let it suffice to say that there was a major build-up outside the ground, and the police commander on the day chose to solve it by ordering the gates to be opened. Naturally, the fans, who were in danger of missing the start of the match, hurried onto the terraces by the most obvious route. And that was into already crowded enclosures through a tunnel beneath a seated stand. The people already inside were forced against crush barriers and the perimeter fencing. And ultimately, 97 people lost their lives. I...
0: I, I can't believe all these negative things you're telling me. <laughs> well, it's it's, not, it's not.
1: It's not a happy tale. No. Yeah, it's not. No. And um, I was at a match that same day. I was at an Arsenal game at Highbury against Newcastle United, and I have mm. to say, it wasn't a very good game. And at half time, we were getting news of people being killed on, the radio, on Radios. And the second half. Oh, I don't know, it just seemed like it was a weird atmosphere that day.
0: Sure, I imagine so. Back to Don. Okay,
1: I wasn't at the game, but quite a few people that I had to drink with after work most evenings were. I said goodbye to them on the Friday, knowing that they were travelling to Sheffield the following morning. I also knew that they had terrace tickets. The pub we used didn't open at weekends. I spent a very anxious weekend and hurried to the pub as soon as I could on Monday. The licensee, who I knew was going behind the bar, was behind the bar, and I nervously asked if everyone was okay. Miraculously, it would appear everyone from the pub was safely home. One of the group was a senior steward at Liverpool, and at almost the last moment, he had been able to secure seats for everyone so that they were all safe. But they were still reluctant witnesses to the horror taking place.
5: Mm -hmm.
1: Other people... I knew also had tickets, but they only had terrace tickets. There was one person in particular who I didn't see or hear of for a full week. And he wasn't seen in any of his usual haunts. I feared the worst. Then one morning I turned a corner and I nearly collided with him. I was so relieved that I just threw my arms around him asked what had happened to him on the day he confessed that he had too much to drink the night before, woke up late with a terrible hangover and didn't even go. (laughs) He then had to stand there and be verbally abused by me for getting me unnecessarily worried. (laughs) The Sun newspaper which unashamedly supported Margaret Thatcher and therefore had a dislike of anything to do with Liverpool, blamed the disaster on drunken fans arriving late and forcing the gates open. It also claimed that the pockets of the dead had been emptied by fellow fans. Mm. South, South Yorkshire Police was quick, quick to jump on this bandwagon in an attempt to cover up the truth and its role in causing the disaster, spreading stories of police horses being burned with cigarettes and many other tales not worth repeating to this, to this day, the sun is universally boycotted on Merseyside in general and by Liverpool supporters everywhere. The full truth didn't come out until an inquiry in 2016 after decades of campaigning by the victims of the families, by the, sorry, by the families, by the families of the victims. Yeah. Um, by the way, I did look up uh, events such as Heysel and Hillsborough in Margaret Thatcher's memoir, Downing Street Years, and her authorised biography by Charles Moore. Mm-hmm. There's only a passing reference to Heysel in the context of a diplomatic dispute with Belgium, um, but nothing else, and nothing else about hooliganism or football at all. just thought I'd add that.
5: <laughs>
1: the City, by and large, fell in with the families and gave its support and celebrated with them when the truth emerged, although some resentment on the part of some Everton fans over the perceived injustice of their club, disproportionately suffering after Heysel remains to this day. Ultimately, although, although Liverpool is now a major tourist destination because of the Beatles and for its history and is a major Hollywood and TV film location it is probably because of the two disasters of the 1980s and how it has been treated by the media and the authorities that it still identifies itself by its football teams and with an us against the world attitude Hmm. back to me (laughs) The weekend following the Hillsborough disaster, I was due to visit Liverpool's Anfield Stadium for the first time for a decisive league fixture between Liverpool and Arsenal. They were the two teams vying for the league championship. The match, along with all other matches, was postponed. The Liverpool players, instead of training and playing matches, spent the next couple of weeks attending funerals. Neither Liverpool or Arsenal were to play for the rest of April. Other fixtures took place amidst an outpouring of emotion and solidarity with Liverpool. The Liverpool anthem, You'll Never Walk Alone, was sung by fans of other clubs up and down the country. Liverpool eventually won the postponed semi-final and subsequent FA Cup final over arch-rivals Everton. The important league fixture between Liverpool and Arsenal was rearranged as the final game of the season, with Arsenal needing to win by at least two goals to win the title. Otherwise, Hmm. Liverpool would be champions again. It was a difficult feat at the best of times. Arsenal hadn't won Anfield for many years and no team had won by that scoreline for several seasons. I was amongst the 41,718 people packed into Anfield that evening with another 12 million people watching on British television and countless millions worldwide. Arsenal took the lead in the second half and as the clock ticked over to stoppage time at the end of the game, Arsenal midfielder Michael Thomas was in on goal with only Liverpool keeper Bruce Grobola to beat. The dramatic goal Thomas scored seconds before the final whistle won Arsenal's first league championship title in 18 years, but it also helped change football in England. The Taylor report on the Hillsborough disaster, the blame for the disaster with the South Yorkshire police and the stadium itself, one of his recommendations was that all football grounds were to be all-seater. And that became law for those clubs in the top two divisions of English football.
0: What
1: does that mean? It means it was illegal for for, um, a football ground to have standing terraces. Uh, in, oh, okay. In the right. top two divisions of English football, in the in the then in the first, oh, field, okay, okay, and second division, all cedar. Okay, makes sense. In, okay. All cedar stadiums. Yes. Not very
0: smart here. So sorry. <laughs> That's all right.
1: You're you're here. Slow. You're here for <laughs> clarification. That's important. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the move to safer, more comfortable stadiums saw a new type of supporter coming to the game in the 1980s. The number of eyeballs that had watched the drama of the title decider at Anfield and the following year, the optimism of noin- the 1990 World Cup in Italy, with England reaching the semifinals, prompted fledgling satellite television channel Sky Sports to be willing to pay big money for exclusive rights to league games the chairman of the 20 clubs in the first division agreed to break away from the rest of the football league and form the FA Premier League in 1992. English teams were allowed back into European competition, and in 1996, England hosted the European Championships. English football has gone from strength to strength since then, in 1999, Manchester United became England's first European Cup winners in 15 years in the now revamped Champions League. The English League is now the richest in the world. But what of our weekend warriors? Where have where have they all gone? Well, they still exist. Not at the grounds, meeting up for fights elsewhere. (laughs) Trouble is still a major problem in parts of Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, and some English supporters still cannot go abroad without causing trouble. Hmm. So, as the referee looks at his watch and the whistles from the crowd waiting for the end of the game get louder, we make our way across the terrace to the exit. We'll take a last look back at the stadium, bathed in floodlights as the North London sky has darkened. The whistle goes, cheers and boos. With transistor radio pressed to our ear, we listen out for the results of other games as we make our way to the end of the long queue at the tube station and the start of our journey home. The end. the
0: end man there's so much violence so many people dying over again trying to go and just trying to go and enjoy that just just going for an afternoon out you know Yep, it's so sad it
1: is yes Uh, very sad indeed
0: i'm sure there's there's some of that in american say american football history i'm sure there's some of that as well uh, that I don't know anything about, Mm -hmm. but wow. There's just so many times you're saying those things. I've just, I literally couldn't, I just, I was a little speechless. I was like, wow, you couldn't,
1: it's it's just amazing. So now, you know, the story behind weekend warrior. So maybe you have a bit more respect for the song.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's hard because the song's just not very good. (laughs) Oh dear. Maybe, maybe respect for the idea behind the song. Okay, yes, maybe. I, I, if indeed, do you do you think that that they had that much that, that there was that much thought put into it with Yannick and Steve writing that song?
1: Um, I, 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 I sus, I suspect. It, I don't. Know. My thought is it. It it seems like it might have been a bit of an itch that Steve, in particular, wanted to scratch, and that, that yeah, yeah. yeah write a football song. <laughs>
0: would would you see would you see Steve growing up, Steve Harris as a hooligan type?
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know whether, whether if if, if events had been different, maybe whether he would have been a deal in his younger days. Um, I have read somewhere that he may well have been offered a trial at West Ham. I have uh, heard that, yeah. Um, so he and I noticed just recently he's obviously still playing because he played a game at Leicester City <laughs> the, other, the other day for for the Iron Maiden team. So he yeah. his age, he's still going strong. All crazy,
0: yeah. That's that's impressive. That's a very mm. impressive thing. So, yes, well, now. Everybody out there knows the story, whether they wanted to or not.
1: <laughs> yes, and and now you have the pleasure of editing this together with excerpts of the songs. So you've got to listen to oh, it a few times. <laughs>
5: I know,
0: I know, I know. So, uh, well, you know, I would ask you this question, you know, but um, for me, it's Sunday afternoon. But for you, it's early Monday morning. So it is, uh, I'll ask you one more question yes. here. Uh, w- one last question: okay. What you gonna do <laughs> on Monday? Uh, well, what you gonna do, <laughs>
1: Andrew? <laughs>
0: Remember that? Yeah, I do.
1: <laughs> um, actually, this Monday is the reason why I'm doing this tonight. is a is a, It's a holiday over here for the Queen's That's birthday that. weekend. So.
0: <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad it worked out. Yes. So I'll tell you, uh, I, I I know that you put a lot of time. I know you put a lot of effort into it, and and, and as well as enlisting the help of uh, the Liverpool Scouser, Don, Don McIntyre as well.
1: So Don was a star. He I approached him and I asked tentatively, could he help me out with this? And he said, well, I might be able to help you out. Football's not my thing, really. Um, I know he's a rugby okay. cricket man, um, and so he said, maybe I'll be able to put a few words together for you. I'll have a thought, think about it. And then he came back with um, page after page of stuff. It was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, The way you kept saying, okay, now Andrew's in, now I'm in, or uh, I thought this sounds more like a tag team wrestling match. That's right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I guess, I guess that could go along with some hooliganism. So Yes. But, but um, as always, Thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, taking the time to do all the research because I know that, uh, you know, we're all pressed for time. So
1: thank you. It's been a pleasure. I I have to admit, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, researching and writing this one.
0: (laughs) I I, I figured you probably enjoyed this one
1: more than most. Yes. There we go. (laughs) Well, cheers. Okay. Bye. And oh, by the way, up the Ganners and up the Irons.
3: Arsenal, 2. Tottenham Hotspur, 0. Birmingham City, 3. Aston Villa, 0. Brighton and Hove Albion, 0. Southampton, 1. Ipswich Town, 2. Norwich City, 3. Liverpool, 5. Manchester City, 2. Luton Town, 1. Watford, 0. Manchester United, 0. Sunderland, 0. Nottingham Forest, 4. Coventry City, 2. Stoke City, 1. Everton, 0. West Bromwich Albion, two, Notts County, two. West Ham United, three, Swansea City, two. League Division, two. Barnsley, nil, Sheffield Wednesday, nil. Bolton Wanderers, one, Carlisle United, nil. Burnley, nil, Blackburn Rovers, one. Crystal Palace, one, Charlton Athletic, one. Fulham, one, Cambridge United, one. Middlesbrough, one, Leicester City, one. Newcastle United, 1, Derby County, 0. Queen's Park Rangers, 1, Chelsea, 2. Rotherham United, 3, Grimsby Town, 0. Shrewsby Town, 0. Wolverhampton Wanderers, 2. League Division, 3. Bournemouth, 1, Reading, 1. Cardiff City, 3, Newport County, 2. Exeter City, 1, Plymouth Argyle, 0. Gillingham, 1, Southend United, 0. Huddersfield Town three, Chesterfield one, Oxford United four, Bristol Rovers two, Portsmouth two, Brentford one, Preston North End nil, Bradford City nil, Sheffield United three, Doncaster Rovers one, Walsall one, Lincoln City one, Wrexham one, Wigan Athletic one, League Division Four Aldershot one, Swindon Town. One, Bristol City one, Port Vale three, Harterpool United two, Darlington nil, Hull City one, Halifax Town one, Northampton Town four, Crewe Alexandra nil, Peterborough United two, Colchester United one, Scunthorpe United one, Rochdale one, Stockport County three, Blackpool nil, Torquay United two, Hereford United one. Tranmere Rovers 2, Chester 4, Wimbledon 1, Mansfield Town 1, York City 3, Bury 1, Scottish League Premier Division, Aberdeen 2, Kilmarnock 0, Celtic 5, Morton 1, Dundee United against Motherwell, evening kickoff at 7.30, Hibernian 0, Rangers 0, St Mirren 0, Dundee 0, Scottish League Division, one. Arianians, one. Wraith Rovers, two. A United, nil. Heart of Midlothian, three. Clydebank, two. Allower, two. Dunfermline Athletic, one. Hamilton Academicals, one. Falkirk, two. Dumbarton, one. Queen's Park, one. Paddock Thistle, four. St. Johnston, two. Clyde, one. Scottish League Division, two. Arbro, three. Queen of the South, two. East Five four, Albion Rovers three. Meadowbank and East Stirlingshire, evening kickoff at seven thirty. Montrose Nil. Cowdenbeath four. Stenhouse viewer nil. Four five Athletic one. Stirling Albion one, Brecon City, one. And Stranra one, Berwick Rangers.
2: Stop the faith and just What you gonna do on my-
1: Well, this is an album that you have dedicated at least two podcasts to in the dim and distant past. Um, it's Fear of the Dark. It's Fear of the Dark. It's Fear of the Dark.
5: Thank <laughs> you. rebel
4: of yesterday, tomorrow's fool, who are you kidding being that cool? Trying to break away from running with the pack, but they ain't listening, so you gotta go back. You're a weekend warrior when you're one of the crowd, but it's over, just look at you now. You're not so brave the way you behave. It makes you sick. Gotta get out quick. It's all bravado when you're out there with your mates. It's like a different person goes through those gates. And the game begins, the adrenaline's high. Feel the tension. Maybe someone will die. You've gotta get out, gotta get away. But you're in with a click, it's not easy to stray. You've gotta admit, you're just living a lie. It didn't take long to work out why. It's hard to say why you got involved. Just waiting to be a part. Just waiting to belong. A weekend warrior, lately. A weekend warrior, sometimes. A weekend warrior, maybe. You ain't that way anymore. Some of the things that you've done, you feel so ashamed. After all, it's only a game, isn't it? After all, the adrenaline's gone. What you gonna do on Monday? What you gonna do, Andrew? (laughs) On Monday? What you gonna do? A weekend warrior lately? A weekend warrior sometimes? A weekend warrior? Maybe you are never like that at all. A weekend warrior. <laughs>